When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you want to be influential, you actually, I believe, need to commit to always being the one to listen first. Because the other person who disagrees with you just literally cannot hear you until they feel heard and understood by you. That was Zoe Chance on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the upcoming book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot POTC. ZocDoc.com slash POTC. Psychologists Off the Clock is proud to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. Praxis is the premier provider of evidence-based training for mental health professionals. 
And here at Psychologists Off the Clock, we are huge fans of Praxis. One of the things I love most about Praxis is they offer both live and on-demand courses. So if you're really looking for that live interaction with other people who are taking the course, you can get that. Or if you have a busy schedule and you need something that you can just kind of click onto whenever you have time, they offer that as well. And every course I have ever taken from Praxis has really been of such value to me. I get questions a lot from clinicians who are looking for ACT training or other types of trainings. And Praxis is my go-to place that I send people no matter what level they are because they have really good beginner trainings for people who have no experience. And they also have terrific advanced trainings on different topics and just people who want to keep building their skills. You can go to our website and get a coupon for the live trainings by going to our offers page at offtheclockpsych.com slash sponsors. And we'll hope to see you there. Jill and I are here to introduce an episode about influence. I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Zoe Chance, who has recently come out with a book called Influence is Your Superpower. And of course, influence is something we all want in life. We all want to be able to make a difference, to get more things that we want to be heard. In a sense, one of our main goals in life is to have influence, whether it's with people who are close to us or the world at large. And yet it's something that is hard to figure out how to do skillfully. And so her book offers all sorts of really interesting science and tips in how to do that. But what I want to start out by saying is that the thing I found most compelling about this book is that it comes from a very values-oriented perspective. So whereas we often think about influence from a consumer perspective of like how people are trying to sell us things and get influence over our time and our wallets, she really comes at it from the perspective of how do we use influence for good? How do we make the world a better place through having influence. So she teaches the skills, but teaches it in a way that's very values oriented. And Jill, I know that the values piece is is really important to you too. Well, absolutely. And I think this is such a timely episode because I think we've all been thinking about influence a lot more than usual, you know, around issues with vaccines and COVID and politics and, you know, where we just feel this divide that we can't get on the same page with each other. And what I found really compelling about this conversation with Zoe was the role that listening plays in influence that like really the first step, but that, that you'll never influence anyone unless and until you first become a really skillful listener. And, um, I, I wanted to share an example where influence occurred in my relationship. And I, I didn't even really realize it till after the fact. And, There was a situation where my husband and I disagreed on something and there was something that he didn't want me to do that I wanted to do. And I think my normal response would have been to just be defensive, to try to convince him that this was okay. And then he would have in turn done the same thing, right? And I, I'm not sure what compelled me to do it because it was before I listened to the, to the episode, but I really sat back and tried to listen and empathize. Zoe talks a lot about the importance of empathy and to understand where he was coming from. And ultimately, he, he spoke to me from a place of values and emotions. And that kind of like cracked my heart wide open so that I was able to listen and take it in a lot more. And ultimately, um, 
I decided to agree with him. So he influenced me successfully and it felt like the right decision. This is not something I did unwillingly or out of guilt or obligation. Or even to get something from him. It wasn't transactional. Correct. A hundred percent. It was, you are my husband. Our relationship is my primary value in this situation. I see how you feel right now, how much pain you're in, and that matters to me. And therefore, I am. I choose to agree with your stance. And then it just so happened that something else that we had been not in agreement about for over a year, a little while after this conversation, he came around and then decided to let me go with what I wanted to do. And I know I'm being a little vague here. I just don't want to, you know, air this stuff with, I don't have Billy's permission. I didn't talk to him about it before. So, um, but he came around and kind of gave in to what I wanted about this other thing. And like you just said, that was not the purpose. It just happened to be what happened. And I have a feeling that I un- unintentionally influenced him because of that previous conversation that we had. And I didn't put it together until I listened to this episode and recognized the role of empathy, listening, and values. Yeah, it seems paradoxical on the face of it, but this is a truth that Zoe repeats over and over again in in lots of different fascinating ways and backed up with science and really interesting anecdotes that to be influential, we need to be influenceable. And it's Mm -hmm. really interesting how that works, but to be able to listen deeply actually allows us to get heard more deeply. And and there's this sort of give and take that's not transactional, but sort of like when you enter in very fully to a conversation, then you can connect with people and that forms a platform from which you can collaborate more effectively. And that requires you to um, work together with people in a collaborative way, which means that you're going to be influenced. One other challenge to listening deeply, though, that I just wanted to point out because it came up during this interview is so sometimes, as you're pointing out, Jill, we get defensive. And so that puts us in a position of having a hard time uh, listening. Another challenge that comes up a lot for me is when I'm anxious about how somebody might perceive me. And I just really love Zoe Chance's book. I love her research. I love the messaging. And I got really nervous heading into the interview. And in the very beginning of the interview, I found myself having a hard time really relaxing into the conversation. And it's an interesting thing as you're talking about the value of deep listening and you're thinking, I'm having a hard time listening. It's sort of like (laughs) if you're listening to music and you're thinking about listening to music, you're not actually listening to the music. And so there's this sort of release of ego, release of the cognitive piece, and a willingness to just be really mindful and inside of an experience that is really critical to good listening that I think is a skill that we can all practice and do better at, even those of us, for example, who listen professionally. (laughs) Right. And, And I think maybe part of what you're talking about that many humans have a hard time with is the difference between listening versus waiting to speak. And we often wait to speak rather than really sitting back and just taking in what we're hearing. And, and that's, that, that's a skill that takes some, some practice. It does, but it is a critical skill for having more influence, which again is something that many of us want more of in our lives. So we hope that you have a chance to listen deeply to this conversation and that it helps you to gain some more influence going forward. 
Dr. Zoe Chance is a writer, teacher, researcher, infatuated with the topic of influence and persuasion, and author of the new book, Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen. Zoe teaches and does research at Yale, and her behavior change framework guides Google's global food policy. Her mission is to teach smart, kind people to raise money for charity, get elected to political office, fund startups, start movements, save lives, find love, negotiate great deals and job offers, and get along better with their kids. In other words, she helps people to use their superpower of influence as a force for good, including, I want to note, by donating half of the proceeds of the book sales to fight climate crisis. Welcome, Zoe. Thank you so much, Yael. I'm really happy to connect with you. I'm really happy to um, to talk to you about influence because it's such a dominant theme in our culture. And one thing I just want to point out is that many books on influence are about becoming better leaders. And you certainly talk about this, but part of what I love about your work is how much you discuss the importance of influence in so many areas of our life, including our close relationships like parenting and partnership. And I'd also argue that influence is a big part of mental wellness in general and mental illness. And in fact, some mental health disorders are defined by ineffective influence strategies. I would love to hear about that. Yeah. So one of the really commonly seen clinical presentations is something called borderline personality disorder. And it's characterized- I've dated someone with that diagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> Most of us have. And it's a relatively common presentation in, in the therapy office and in complicated dating histories. And it's characterized by these really ineffective efforts to influence other people that are felt as if they are unwanted manipulation. And I think manipulation is certainly something that we get afraid of in sort of the environment of talking about influence. And what I've always kind of thought is that manipulation isn't a bad thing as long as it's done in an effective way. So let me actually pause myself and, and back up a little bit. I wonder if you can actually share with us your definition of influence. What is it and what is it not? Because I think that might give us sort of a platform to talk about like how to be effective in our influence. I define influence as broadly as possible to be anything that shifts somebody's thinking or behavior. So it can be intentional or unintentional. It can be beneficent or malicious or neutral, manipulative or non-manipulative, perceived or not perceived through words or through actions. So influence very, very broad. And influence is basically power. Within that, first of all, persuasion is influence through communication, through words. And then manipulation, how you define this, how each of us defines this is critically important because it determines what we're willing to do and what we're not willing to do to try to influence other people. A lot of us who I get to interact with as I'm teaching and training students, leaders of various types, a lot of us feel like we don't want to be manipulative and anything that someone doesn't know is going on that we're doing to try to influence them, we are concerned that that's manipulative. So we don't want to do anything that they're not aware of. But almost none of us have ever been trained in the psychology of influence. So that means whoever we're hoping to influence hasn't been trained in this stuff. And they don't know the kinds of things that we're saying or doing might have an effect one way or the another. So I believe that the important thing is just that we're not hiding our agenda from them. 
And as a very simple example, if we get to decide what the default is, like say we're an employer and we are either giving an employees the option to choose their health insurance plan or their mental health care plan, or we're giving them a default into the plan that we think will be a good idea for them. We are nudging them to say, hey, here's the default plan. And hopefully you're doing that because we think that this is best. They may not realize that our choice of the default has such a big effect on what plan they end up with. And it's huge. It's almost certainly bigger than they realize. But is it manipulative? It's only manipulative if our secret agenda is something that's not going to serve them if we don't care about their well-being. But parents, so you so you write and talk about parents and kids, right? Like, are you manipulating your children when you use reverse psychology? I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I think you kind of are. And this kind of gets to the ulterior motive. You know, do you have confidence that your motive is for good, for their good and for yours? And I think that is a part that you talk about that is really critically important. The other part that I think there's many parts, but one other part that you talk a lot about, and I think this kind of feeds into a bit of what you're saying in terms of um, having a more transparent agenda, is also giving people the room to like recognize that agenda and say yes or no, like I buy in or I don't. And I think that you can even do that with very young kids. And and actually, and this is what you talk about a lot, it's more effective, right? Even with a very young child, you talk about your inner two-year-old. I mean, and, and that is true. Like if you have a two-year-old, you're much more likely to get their buy-in if you give them the opportunity to have influence back on you, right? You're trying to influence them. But if you can allow them to influence you as well, then you're not going to feel you're, like you're coercing them because it's more of a negotiation, even with a small child. Right. To give people a sense of control, which is not the same as giving them the control. They already have the control. And even the two-year-old is deciding what to do with his or her. And I happen to have a nephew who's two at the moment. He's very strong-willed and I, I adore Whitney. But it's not easy to influence Whitney by telling him what to do, right? He's He has this very strong, it's not just inner two-year-old, he is the two-year-old. But we, <laughs> we continue to have that immediate visceral reaction to someone trying to pressure us into doing something to say, literally or essentially, you're not the boss of me, you don't tell me what to do. And we can have this reactance or resistance or backlash, even when we actually might have wanted to do the thing, or we might see that it's a good idea for us. We feel very resistant when we feel that our choices are restricted. So like Whitney, if you're telling him you have to go outside right now, <laughs> like he's going to resist going outside, even though it's his favorite thing to do. But if you put his shoes on or you like, I don't know, bring two pairs of shoes and be like, hey, which which shoes do you want to wear to go outside? He'll be like those, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and parents are getting this, figuring it out. You know, we read books on parenting, but then, and, and kids are the hardest people to influence, right? I'm so glad that you said that. That's so validating, I think, for, <laughs> for parents. I will also just add, I think partners are also quite hard to influence. They're number two. 
I would say. Yeah. Absolutely number two. So I train people like CEOs and central bankers. I even had a princess in my class a while ago because I do executive education at Yale and then um, go around the world sharing these ideas and insights and science on influence. And it's hilarious to me how often I deliver some workshop to C-level executives and then I have people coming up to me afterward or even in the workshop saying, can you help me influence my child? Like I have this teenage daughter, I have this two-year-old or writing me notes afterwards to say, oh my God, my daughter, she cleaned up her room for the first time in six months. Like, wow, my son actually washed out the sink before after brushing his teeth for the first time ever. It's really funny that- Wait, so tell us the secret there. How, how What is the secret to influencing your child? What are the tips that you give these high-powered people that- have influence in every area of their life, except for with their children. <laughs> There's not one secret. There, there are multiple strategies and multiple opportunities, but one of the biggest ones is what's already come up, which is giving people a sense of agency and control. And this is equally for children, for employees, for partners. They already have agency. They already have control over their lives and their decisions and their behavior, but you're offering them that recognition. And what you said, Yal, about letting them influence you, absolutely one of the key principles to influence that most people don't realize is that if you want to be influential, it requires being influenceable. So you're not having this transactional effort to get them to do the thing that you want and you just see them as a means or an obstacle to your outcome but you're putting an idea or opportunity or offer out there. You let them know what, what your hope is. And then you acknowledge you have the freedom to make your own decision, right? And I guess in your work on motivational interviewing, is this a big part of it? Absolutely. I mean, motivational interviewing is the tenet is rolling with resistance, sort of like accepting the resistance and meeting people where they're at. And Related to that, I'll also say that my clinical specialty is in, in parenting and also in marital relationships. And one thing that I'm constantly advising couples on is moving away from trying to control one another to more of an orientation of influence, of letting them know what feels important, but also being willing to negotiate and to become a team like me and you versus this difference that we have, difference of opinion, difference of agenda, difference of outcome desired. And when you set it up that way, it gets exactly to what you're saying, which is it opens you up to hearing more about what's important to them and allows them to kind of breathe a little bit more easily because they're not going to feel as if you're going to pressure them into a particular way of being or thinking. Right. Or to be disappointed, right? To threaten them implicitly or explicitly with this disappointment that's going to just burden them with guilt, but not to say like, Hey, it's fine. No matter what, like, Hey, you do whatever you want, but you're saying, this is this thing that here's the thing that I hope for. And you, you have the right to live your own life. And I get that. I get that. You're not the boss of me. I've been divorced twice. I'm married now. And I, it took me until my third marriage to understand the principle that you're talking about. And it's, it's so incredible. hard. And I also though, in 
finally, <laughs> belatedly, because I've been studying this research and teaching and everything and influence for a long time, but it took me a while to apply it to my romantic partnerships. But I've also learned this with my baby daddy, who I'm not married to anymore, but he's a colleague in my department. So I see him all the time. And he's a phenomenal co-parent. And now that I don't try to tell him what to do, and I and he's the boss of obviously he's the boss of himself and his relationship with our daughter and whatever she does or doesn't do at his house. We have a phenomenal working relationship and we get along so much better than we ever did when we were married. And then, and I would say even with him, not just with my husband, who obviously we have lots of reasons to please each other and want each other to be happy, but with my ex-husband, we have this gentle supportive relationship with each other where we try to help each other be happy. And it's not just because we're nice. It's because now we're smart and we've learned how to do this. And we've learned how to work together that everything is better for all of us. If we're trying to make each other happy, not make each other, but we're trying to support each other's happiness and be flexible when we can. And there's no transactional nature to this. I, I shy away from the idea of negotiating not because we're not negotiating all the time, we are, but a lot of people think that negotiating means compromise. And they think it means something like meeting in the middle, like you get a little bit of what you want, and I get a little bit of what I want, and we're both equally unhappy. And I don't think that's the sense in which you meant it. I actually would love for you to say a little bit more about that, because in my mind, compromise feels very positive. But you're saying that for a lot of people, it can feel um like an outcome that they don't want because it means less happiness than what they would ideally uh, shoot for. It really depends where we're, whether we're talking about compromising on a specific issue or trading off in the long run. And lots of times when people talk about compromise or they use that word, they're talking about a very specific issue, in which case both of us are equally unhappy versus something like sometimes you get to be happy and have exactly the thing that you want. And sometimes I get to be happy and have exactly the thing that I want. And we're not keeping track. We're not being counting. We're not saying, okay, I'll do this. If you do that, we're just saying, Hey, here's this thing that I would love. And can we do this? Is that possible? And then we're saying, you know, Oh, you're telling me something that you wish for. So even in big decisions, like where do we live? Right, which is a not compromisable situation. You live in one place. Or um, the one that comes up very frequently in couples therapy is should we have a baby, another baby, or a baby, or not, right? These sort of non-compromisable choices that we make in life. How do you help people, couples, navigate some kind of decision like, do we have a baby? Can I just (laughs) point out one thing? And I... I don't know if I'll cut this out or not, but I, so I've been listening to some of your podcast interviews and and talks, and I love one of the tips that you offer in your writing, but that you really put into action, which is asking questions back to the interviewer. And it makes it, it makes it a more fun conversation. Thank you. (laughs) It's a great question. And it's certainly a big, complicated question. But one thing that I really try to have people do is share with their partner, what feels really important about the decision, right? In terms of what motivates them to want a child, what is it about a life of having a child that feels really important? 
or what about having a life that is child-free feels really important. Once people have that sense, and this, I think actually you get at this in your book when you say like to get to the deeper why of what people want and listen for that why, because it helps you to connect to them. And in any negotiation, feeling connected and like you understand and that you are understood helps you to be more of a team in figuring out like what is the best outcome for us as a, for me as an individual, but for us as a unit. And there are times where individuals are able to kind of get on board, okay, you know, you want a life where you can take care of somebody and I want to feel more free and we can negotiate that. Say say my partner wanted to have a child and I didn't. I might agree, okay, let's have a child. But what I want to negotiate for is like opportunities to sustain some freedom. Like on a weekly basis, I want to go do me, you know, go out. Um, and do my hobby or be able to travel, that feels really important to me. On the opposite side, if you decide not to have a child, the person who really wanted to have a child might find some ways to um, fulfill the desire that having a child would, would bring, caretaking, really being connected in close personal relationships. And then there are times that there just can't be an agreement. And that's always really hard to witness if the partners really loved each other. And that, that was kind of like the one thing that they couldn't find agreement on. And that's, you know, always really sad. But I do think that having that conversation about like, what is it about this kind of a lifestyle that feels really important to me gives you that opportunity to figure out like, can we fulfill the needs in a choice that, you know, brings each of us some part of what we want? Yeah, it's such such a big choice. And it's great that some people have you there to support them in a fundamental disagreement like that. And, um, and also I'll just put a holla out there to divorce is a really amazing way to parent a child. (laughs) If you have a fabulous co-parent partner, it's actually even better than being with your partner because you get all this time to yourself and both of you get to experience the incredible wonderfulness of child rearing and the incredible wonderfulness of actually having freedom. Um, so shout out to divorce. <laughs> yes, shout that. out, shout out to divorce. Um, and, and to working on an amicable divorce to give you this kind of incredible experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, and what you're talking about, about listening to each other is so important in any situation where there's a disagreement that if you want to be influential, you actually, I believe, need to commit to always being the one to listen first because the other person who disagrees with you just literally cannot hear you until they feel heard and understood by you. So you might have this urge to share what you think, what you feel, what you hate, what you want, but they just cannot hear any of that until you've listened with that kind of curiosity that you're talking about, yeah, about what is what are the reasons and what are your deep values and values are what I write about aiming for in this chapter on deep listening. When you're listening in that way, we actually, actually, not just are silent and letting them speak, but you are curiously and open-mindedly and generously trying to understand what is this that they deeply care about that has them hold this perspective? You're developing empathy in yourself. And so you're connecting with them and almost always 
you share those values too, like what you were talking about in the parenting example. Do we have a kid? Do we not? Just about all of us, at least all of us who are in relationships, have some value for love and connection, right? And just about all of us, including everyone I've ever met, has some value for freedom. So we can connect to those values in each other, even if we're trying to fulfill them in different ways, or even if they hold different priorities in our schema. And when we feel and can say, I get that, I appreciate that, I feel that too, I also want to have this feeling of love and connection. But to me, that's fulfilled with you, my partner. And I, I, I fear losing that if we have a child and, you know, your love gets directed to someone else, or we're just overwhelmed and sleepless and we don't get to have a romance time anymore. How are we even going to have sex with a child? <laughs> like any of this, right? right? That's a, it's a so nice conversation to have, or you, you value your freedom and your ability to do things like hobbies and adventures and you want to have grown-up time and like, oh my God, I want to have that too, right? So let's figure out if we do have a child, how to have some space for both of us. I don't want to have 18 years or more of this constant micromanager and to lose all of the things that have us be happy right now, right? How can we figure out how to spot each other and spare each other to have some time to do things on our own and how can we figure out how to have a babysitter or you know some kind of child care share where we meet other people and we drop kids off in each other's houses so that all of us can do that right absolutely look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do i even say other than hey well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, you know, we're talking about this in the parenting sphere, but I think it applies to so many areas where we just feel like we fundamentally disagree with people. And it is very hard to listen to people who we feel that we fundamentally disagree with. And when we're in a fight with our partner, that certainly applies. (laughs) But that applies when we're trying to listen to somebody across the political divide or when we're trying to um, listen to somebody who wants us to do something that we don't want to do. So the question you pose this terrific question in your book that I'm absolutely fascinated by as a as a therapist, but how do you listen to another person when disagreement motivates you to turn inward? And I wonder if you can talk us through some of your tips and also your empathy challenge, which I think is just awesome. Thank you. This is exactly what we're talking about right now is the the empathy challenge essentially. And when we're talking about the political divide, there are a lot of people in a lot of situations that just absolutely cannot do this kind of listening that we're talking about. And it requires that we imagine and assume that the other person is smart and well-intentioned. 
And if we can't have that basic assumption, we're just not going to be able to do that kind of listening in that situation. And to me, that's really okay. Just to acknowledge to yourself, here's the goal. If you want to have that person listen to you ever, certainly along that path lies you listening to them first with this assumption that they're smart and well-intentioned and that allows you to get curious and to be open-minded and to be influenceable. But if you're so angry that you can't do that, it's just not time yet for you to do that. Or this particular person is not the one for you to listen to. So if we're talking about the political divide, there may be some people, and let's say some people in your family, right, who are so triggering for you that you feel absolutely antagonistic toward them. And there's just this history backlog of aggression and frustration. And you believe that they are never going to listen to you. And so you just don't want to listen to them. Okay. It's not your job to listen to everyone in the universe who disagrees with you. It's just your opportunity. If you want to be influential to listen to some of the people who disagree with you. So something that you might do if, you know, your, your difficulty is this barrier of animosity between you and a family member that a lot of us have. I can think of a few examples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it even happened in um, 2000, I guess this started in 2016. Some researchers were, investigating, I don't know if they started it for a different reason, but they were just measuring how long did our Thanksgiving family dinners take in the United States. And in 2015, our Thanksgiving dinners were longer than in 2016. And the researchers were proposing that these, the political animosity that so many of us had with our family members just made it really, really hard to have a chill family Thanksgiving dinner. Um, Anyway, (laughs) yeah, right. But, but this idea that if there's this one person you just can't stand and can't talk to about this issue, maybe you could talk to other people who disagree with you on this issue. Maybe you have a friend or a colleague, or like in my case would be students, probably not employees if you're their boss, because that makes it a very awkward power dynamic. Uh, But maybe one of your friends has their partner disagrees with you. If you want to try to understand people on the other side of the spectrum, talk with people that you don't already have a lot of pent up anger at to try to understand what might their point of view be. And this was really eye-opening to me when I tried this myself. So the empathy challenge is just you talk to three people who disagree with you on a particular area that you care deeply about. But it has to be three people that you can assume are smart and well-intentioned. And then you're just asking them to educate you on their perspective. Why is it that they feel this way or think this way on that issue? You listen for 15 minutes and then you reflect back to them. It sounds like you care about. So values we've talked about already. It sounds like you care a lot about freedom. It sounds like it's really important to you to feel love and connection and to feel wanted or important. This level of fundamental values. The cool thing is that it's not just that you're connecting with them and developing your empathy yourself by feeling these values, 
but that when you reflect these values back, you don't have to be right. You could be wrong and you still are effective in developing empathy, nurturing this relationship, having them feel heard because they're just going to tell you, right? They'll tell you, no, it's not about love and connection, but it's about me having a sense of contribution to something and someone beyond myself and my own life. Or it's about wanting to leave a legacy or I don't know, whatever all of the reasons are people might want to have or not have the thing that they want to have or don't have. And then they still feel so grateful to you. They feel respected by you because you tried to understand and you cared enough to listen. And even if you didn't totally get it, it's they're totally happy. They've just told you it's a conversation where they're explaining what it is that they really value. And then very, very often they will ask you, they'll have this just visceral reaction of offering reciprocity because that's how we work, right? So when we feel someone has listened to us and we've gotten to share, it's just a normal part of the conversation that then we invite them. Sometimes actually all it takes to persuade somebody is to listen to them in this way. And uh, I had a student, for example, in my most recent class who was listening to his cousin's resistance to getting a COVID vaccine. And in the empathy challenge, you're not trying to persuade anybody to do anything. You're developing your own empathy by listening in this way. And his cousin reached out to him the following Monday to say, you know, after our conversation, I was thinking about it some more and I did some research and I just got a vaccine. So I just wanted to let you know. And she was never going to get a vaccine while she felt like she was being attacked and she was being blamed and she was being put in a box. But once one person reached out and just said, hey, tell me about this. Like, what is it that you're thinking? And she relaxed that resistance that she had. It reminds me, Adam Grant talks about this in his recent book, Think Again. Um, I love that He book. gives some really great examples. But I, I wanted to say, wanted to cite two more studies that relate back to this. One is, uh, it's a couple study where they brought couples in to have a conversation about a problem. And they looked at empathy and they separated empathy into two different ratings. So one was Um, empathic effort, so efforts to understand, and one was empathic accuracy, so how well did you understand? And what the researchers found is that for both men and women, they were studying heterosexual couples, empathic effort mattered more than accuracy, which is exactly what you're saying, that we feel good even if our partner or even if our dialogue partner doesn't totally get it if they're trying that means something to us. That effort matters for that relationship quality. And that relationship quality is the foundation for collaboration. So even if you don't have it just right, knowing that somebody is making an effort to try to understand you makes a big difference. Thank you so much. I didn't remember that. And I have to go back to that study because yes, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. The second area of research that I've just found really interesting. So my parents are Israeli and I think the Middle East is just like this area that's really fascinating in terms of, you know, people wanting to have influence and being ineffective and conflict just persisting for, you know, hundreds of years. One thing that researchers have gone in and done is do these compassion building exercises between Palestinians and Israelis. And what they find is that when you actually get people in a room, even people who don't have uh, a lot of confidence in the intelligence or, or the sort of 
goodness of the other party, that if you get people just to just get to know each other in sort of a venue that isn't focused on working out that particular conflict, that it breeds a willingness to build that empathy and to build that beneficence, the, the benefit of the doubt for the other person. And so I think what's so lovely about this empathy challenge is that if you're challenging yourself, even if you have, you know, just a very little bit of willingness that that willingness really can grow and, but it, it needs to start somewhere. So you don't need to believe that the other party is, has the right idea or is the best person in the world. You just need to be willing to kind of open up to the possibility that they might have something to offer a value that they, there might be some goodness that is inside of them too. And so I think, you know, the empathy challenge is so nice because it sort of pushes you to step out of your comfort zone and give other people a chance in this way that we might not naturally default to because we do kind of tend to hang with the people who already think similarly to what, how we think. Right. Thank you so much for that. And, um, and this is also connected to this body of research that some of your listeners might know, but probably most of them not, on what's called the false polarization bias. And there are many studies that have found that when somebody disagrees with us, we tend to exaggerate and even caricature their opinion. And we imagine that they're on the far extreme end of the spectrum versus us. Well, we have the right idea. So you know, we're in the middle, we're not on the fringe, right? And what happens when we're actually talking with people and actually listening to them is that we realize there's far more overlap than we imagine. And research on US Democrats versus Republicans finds that we have a great deal of overlap, even on all of the hot button issues like abortion and immigration and gun rights. All of these things, we we agree on a lot and it's just that we don't agree on all of it, but the media also it contributes and maybe it's even entirely the media's fault that we have this false polarization bias. So we find when we just listen to somebody that they're not actually as crazy, typically they're not as crazy as we thought that they might be. There's another important thing here that contributes to these uh, findings that we're talking about, which is just simply the effect of hearing another person's human voice. It's very different from the effect of reading something that somebody has written, even if it's exactly the same words. And there's interesting research by Juliana Schroeder and Nick Epley and some of their colleagues finding that when we hear somebody's voice, we humanize them and connect with them. We find them more persuasive. We find them more intelligent and more worthy of our empathy than if we just see the words that it is they've, that they've written down. So when it's like the empathy challenge or something like this, the listening is not something that can happen over email. It's not an email exchange or, you know, you read somebody's social media posts or whatever thing like this. It's actually person to person. You will be influenced by them. Yeah. It's such a call to get off our devices and get into person <laughs> with people. There was just a recent piece in the New York Times that talked about, you know, that we're always trying to optimize our efficiency and that getting together with friends and and loved ones kind of goes out the window because, oh, we can do that more efficiently, you know, over Zoom. And, and I think this is such a, a good reason to say, you know, getting back together in safe ways is so important because we lose the humanity when we are just connected through devices. I, I don't know that connecting 
I mean, I guess I do know connecting through devices is also helpful. Um, and we don't have the same sense of camaraderie that we have in actual in-person environment. And this is why we're not going to have virtual school as an easy substitute for actual teachers and classrooms and things. Right. But another interesting piece of the research that, um, that these researchers are doing was finding that adding a video component didn't increase liking and persuasiveness and the your evaluations of their intelligence and things like that. So Zoom versus phone call, at least according to their research, is not actually more helpful, persuasive rapport building. So what I would like to say is, please don't make everybody be on Zoom to connect with you. So many of us just have Zoom fatigue. And if you're not in the same room, if you already know each other, connecting on the phone is completely fine. And the, the reason for Zoom would be if you haven't met somebody before. So yeah, I'm so glad to that you and I are connecting right now over Zoom and we can see each other and get to know each other in this way. And Zoom is also helpful when there's so many people in the room, virtual room, who aren't speaking. So if you're going to have a conference call with 10 people, that's very difficult compared to having a Zoom room with 10 people or more than that. But we could give each other some space in our lives by switching a lot of our Zooms to phone calls. Yeah. But can I just sort of follow up with a clarification? So it sounds like Zoom and phone calls are not that different than one another, but they differ than in person. There is something added that you get from being in person with people that you can't access from Zoom or phone calls. And so it's sort of- More liking and more persuasiveness. Yeah. 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 And and as we're talking about influence, there's- um, a downside to the persuasiveness of being in person in person as well, because people feel more pressure. So mm-hmm. research by Vanessa Bonds and some of her colleagues have found that in across many studies, people are two or three times more likely to say yes to an in-person request than we anticipate that they will be. So we are far more influential than we think or imagine when we go and ask somebody for something, when we're making a request for help, and that's because we tend to imagine how hard it will be for them to say yes. But on the other side, what they feel is how difficult it is to say no. Mm. We also underestimate or we neglect how good it feels to help people. Even though we know it feels good for us to help people, we're not perspective taking in that way when we're making a request. But also, it if that person feels pressured and like it's hard to say no, we're, we are exerting a bit of extra pressure when we're making an in-person request. So what I recommend in general is, first of all, see if this is a situation where you want to make it easy for the other person to say no. There are lots of situations like that. Like, let's say that um, we have a an employee or student or somebody who's asking us for a reference for a job. You only want to reference if they're going to give you a strong reference. So some people ask us for a reference that actually it's better for them if we say no. But if they come and ask us in person, hey, can you provide a a like, oh, my God, who can say no to an in-person request for a job reference? So but everyone asking for a reference should be emailing. So it's easy to say no. And they should be making it further easy to say no by saying something like, 
would you feel comfortable giving me a strong reference for this job that I'm applying for? And if you get that email, it's much easier to say something like, you know, um, I'm super busy or like, actually, I'm so sorry, we worked together or you took my class a long time ago and I, I don't quite remember enough details. Maybe you have someone else or whatever the reason is, you can say no to that instead of they have pressured you, you said yes, and then you're not able to give them a strong reference and it just totally sucks totally. for everybody. I actually, while I was reading your book, I was in the position of reaching out for endorsements for my book that's coming out in yeah, the fall. Yeah, like that. And I was thinking about your advice and and I ended up emailing people to request, you know, and I, I sort of stepped out of my comfort zone and asked people who I didn't know, whose work I admire, who are very busy and well-known. And I took your advice and said, you know, would you have time to read this book? And if you like it and are comfortable, provide an endorsement. And just as you're, you have this great tip of just ask, like a lot of people <laughs> said yes, that I would have not expected to say yes. It was Isn't it amazing? Sort of startling. Yeah. Yeah. And you asked in this beautiful way with no pressure whatsoever. Yeah. And that's a very scary ask because if someone's really going to read your book, oh my God, that's so much time. You're asking this important thing. It's, it's a huge ask. Yeah. I felt so uncomfortable with those asks as well. Yeah. 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 I actually wanted to talk about the other side of this that you address very systematically in your book, which is saying no to people asking you for whatever, you know, uh, advice or time or everything. Um, money. (laughs) Um, And it's an interesting thing to think about how being able to say no can make you a more influenceable person. And I have to say, actually, the way that I got exposed to your work was I heard an an interview with you on NPR and you were talking about the power of saying no. And it just was so compelling to me because I actually really struggled to say no. It's harder for me to say no than to receive a no. I feel more uncomfortable turning people down. But I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why being able to say no is so powerful in trying to become more influential. Let's challenge everybody who's listening to us right now to consider, Yell and I are not the boss of you, you're the boss of you, but consider taking on the no challenge where you say no to everybody asking you for anything for 24 hours. The idea here is that, first of all, you find out that Yael is not unusual at all in being a people pleaser. Almost all of us are people pleasers. And those of us who already realize that we're people pleasers are probably people pleasing even more than we already realized. We don't notice how much our default reaction is to try to say yes to people. This is part of the reason that we're also more influential than we think, because people's default reaction is to try to say yes to us, right? And it feels good. There's lots of research supporting that contribution of time and money and help in various ways activates the reward network, just like sex and drugs and money and chocolate, things like that. Um, So we're giving people an opportunity to feel good, but also we have this idea that people were afraid to say no, even if it's not conscious, because we don't want the other person to feel rejected. We know that rejection can be very painful and our brain does process rejection literally like physical pain. There's some really cool studies by Naomi Eisenberger, neuroscientist 
finding that that activation is just exactly the same between social rejection and physical pain. We don't want other people to experience that. But what happens is we're not distinguishing between saying no to this thing or opportunity and saying no to that person or relationship. So typically what is helpful to practice is saying no to the thing without saying no to the person or relationship. So warm no. So this 24-hour no challenge is a great opportunity to practice a warm no. And when you think about how we typically say no, and we're trying to not have the person feel rejected, but we're making excuses and explanations, that's not actually very warm at all. Like, oh, thanks. Uh, I wish I could do this, but um, you know, I'm busy with this thing. Like, okay. But that's not reinforcing the relationship. And so I might instead say, oh, yeah, thank you so much for asking for an endorsement of your book. And it looks amazing. And I'm so excited for you to put this out there. I'm really sorry that I've, I have 99 balls in the air and 99,000 on the ground because I dropped them. <laughs> and, you know, I can't do it right now, but I really wish you luck. And you'll feel like, okay, I totally get it. You know, she's happy about me and my book. It's just totally not right for her. I might though, on the other end of the spectrum, express a warm, enthusiastic no in saying like, hey, Yael, I'm excited that you've wrote a, written a book. And actually, endorsement requests are my nightmare. And I never say yes to these things because it's my absolute nightmare I don't know. It's just like a thing. It's just my thing. I hate these, <laughs> but like go forth and prosper. And even in that case, you won't feel like I hate you. You'll just feel like I'm kind of this quirky, adorable weirdo who's paranoid or just <laughs> has this pet peeve about book endorsements. You totally know it's not you. So when you practice saying no, everybody, every situation, you don't need to do it repeatedly with the same person over 24 hours, but each person what you experience is how it feels for most people is scary, but empowering. You're realizing, oh my God, I'm a people pleaser and I'm saying yes to everything. And actually my time, my most valuable resource, I'm just treating it like a public good that everyone has an equal right to, which is completely insane. And then you're also experiencing that I didn't want this other person to feel rejected and in pain, but actually they're okay. If I said no in a warm way, they weren't assuming that I could do the thing. Like, Yell reached out to you for the endorsement. She's not assuming that you're going to say yes. Yeah, she's just hoping. If you say yes, it's great. But like, if you say no, it's fine. But then the further piece of this, the long-term benefit to you of being more comfortable saying no, that's not apparent until you experience it. And because I've now talked about it, you will perceive this, when you become more comfortable saying no, you get more comfortable with the idea of other people saying no to you. When you're more comfortable with other people saying no to you, you're reaching out in a way that doesn't pressure them. And you don't have that repulsive edge of neediness that makes them want to run in the opposite direction. So you're just letting them know, like we've been talking about, like, I'm not the boss of you, right? Like, here's the situation. Here's what I would love. Is there any possibility, right? Or just like you were talking about, yeah, like if you have the time to read this and you like it, 
I would be absolutely delighted beyond belief if you might be willing to provide an endorsement, right? This is such a gentle, empowering way of asking for something that then if they do say yes, they feel generous and empowered instead of pressured and they didn't even get to feel generous about it. So you say no so that you feel comfortable saying no so that you give the other people the opportunity to feel comfortable saying no and then miraculously it makes them want to say yes. And and I think you're getting to this but I'll just say it explicitly. I think when you allow for no both from yourself and from other people, you also make space for a more wholehearted yes. Right? Yes. So a yes that can come in the space of also being okay with a no tends to be a really authentic, committed, invested yes, which is what we're going for. We don't want to get somebody to agree to something under coercion where they don't really want to. And that's what happens. I see this all the time in the couple's room where people just sort of say, fine, fine, have it your way. Right. But that's not a wholehearted yes. That is not a wholehearted yes. And that's not going to get you very far in a relationship or in the business world. So allowing for the no really allows people to come in more fully when there is a yes to be had. This is so important. And if you have coerced someone into saying yes, even if they were totally enthusiastic in that moment, because you put them into a state of scarcity or freaking out or all kinds of other heavy emotional reactions, they, they can even feel like they wanted to say yes in that moment. But what you really want is them to feel good about saying yes in the long run so that you're not pressuring them through any means. And when they say yes, they're not just happy with this outcome, but they are happy to follow through. And then they're open to other ideas of collaboration with you in the future, and they're not trying to get out of it. So even in something as transactional as a sales relationship, it sucks to have sold somebody something that they didn't want. And then you they take a ton of your time to try to get out of this thing that they didn't want. And they will complain about you and take whatever action they can take to take revenge. And in a relationship, I can only imagine that if I have said, okay, fine, Right. Okay, fine. Whatever you want, I'm going to take revenge in some way, one way or another. And you might not know <laughs> what it's going to be or when, but there will come a payback time. It's coming. <laughs> yes. So I'm, I know our time is just about out. So I just wanted to finish with a beautiful quote that I just love from your book, which is, while the study of influence is a science, the practice of influence is an art. And I just love that because it really does form the the platform to sort of look into the science, but also give you some motivation to really put this into practice. And what I want to say is this book is full of really amazing exercises where you can really perfect your art. But other than the book, which is terrific, and I recommend it to everybody, you know, whether you're looking for more influence in your personal relationships or at work, um, whether you're looking to grow a big idea and, and need sort of uh, the ability to connect to people to support that effort, I recommend the book, but where else can people find out more about your work? You can come to my website, www.zoechance.com. My name is Z-O-E-C-H-A-N-C-E. And I have 
things like a free newsletter with influence tips. And later in the year, I'll be launching a free online course. It's global. It's going to be translated into eight different languages. Um, And the book is going to be translated into at least 28 different languages. So if English is not your native language, I'm happy to help you find the book that is in your native language. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciated your time. Thank you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking with you. If you're a Psychologist Off the Clock listener and you love gaining wisdom on living well from good books, join our new Psychologist Off the Clock book club. We're going to be meeting the second Thursday of each month at noon Eastern Standard Time in the U.S. Book club members will be invited to attend monthly book meetings with our team, join our private Facebook group, you'll get a monthly newsletter, and you'll get to vote on upcoming books that we'll discuss. To join, all you need to do is become a Psychologist Off the Clock book club Patreon supporter. Go to Patreon and search for Psychologist Off the Clock, or you can link to it through our offers and events page at offtheclockpsych.com. We hope you join us. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media and purchase swag from our merch store by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.